Good morning again. Are we, are we awake today? Was that tough? I, I got up probably earlier than a number of you. I drove up from uh, Greenville this morning, and I remember fondly, I think this is the second or third year since we've hit the deer on the way here. Does anybody remember that? Um, a few of y'all? That's what, that's, what that's, that's what I'm known for. If, if you're new to this church, you're, you're, I'm known as the guy that hit the deer on the way to preach. Actually, it was my wife, technically, who was driving. She hit the deer. The deer never had a chance, but... I, every, every time I make this, this morning, I was just looking on the road, uh, but the Lord paved the way. I guess the deer, the deer were sleeping in. They didn't, they didn't have their alarm clocks reset. Let's turn to Ephesians 6, and we'll read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 for our text this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His night. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of which this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and the word of the Lord stands forever. VBS workers love this passage. Because there's so many tangible things you can do with it, right? Who, who, who has been a VBS worker who has used this passage? Anybody? I, I, got, I got one hand over there. All right. You like it because you can make like a cardboard helmet and you can get a sword. And you, know, you always like, do I give them the swords at the beginning or at the end when they're walking out? Because if you give it at the beginning, they're going to be fighting. If you walk it out at the end, they're going to be fighting. They're going to be swatting their parents in the car and stuff. But we love the passage. Because you can look at the elements of the armor of God and they feel so real to children. They get more the idea of the armor than they do probably the spiritual component of it, but I think after a time it eventually sinks in. But one element of this passage that I won't say is overlooked, but maybe in a vacation Bible school or even normal church setting sense, can be in practicality overlooked, meaning not in theological or theoretical application, but in the actual application of it is the emphasis on prayer. In a day of age of reason, we tend to want to employ elements of God's visual landscape in Scripture that most connect with the physicality of the world. And prayer seems so often as one of the less tangible elements. 
And this morning, we will explain why it is the most tangible element. In the book of Ephesians, Paul here is asking us to look at the world not from a physical perspective, but from a cosmic one. It is defensive and aggressive in its language, as we just read, as it discusses how we are to fight against the spiritual forces of evil. Peter O'Brien says about Ephesians, this letter is to expand, reinforce, to recapitulate, and to arouse to action. I will say that Presbyterians are armed to the hilt with doctrine. We have a shield of faith for a generation of covenantal theology, a helmet of salvation as confirmed by the communicants class, and a sword of the Spirit reinforced by a confessional understanding of Scripture. We are theological battle tanks, able to repel any Arminian attack. One massive ingredient that still, in surveying, seems to get the less practical application is prayer. Peter O'Brien again says, but prayer is the foundational element by which all other weapons of the Spirit are deployed. For that reason, we are going to focus this morning out of that passage on 18 through 20. Verse 18, the first part, praying at all times, excuse me, praying at all times with prayer and supplication. Adonai Judson, I've spoken of him a few times here in the past, and he's my favorite missionary. He's our first American missionary to go over Burma, and he suffered extreme loss of uh, three children and two wives during his time there, and he eventually himself was buried at sea when he got sick and was trying to make his way back to Burma, and his body was cast into the water, so nobody knows really where. Uh, Of course, he has no precise burial spot, but his story is a legend in the missions world and in the people of Burma. This is what he says about prayer. Arrange thy affairs, if possible, so that thou canst leisurely devote two or three hours every day, not merely to devotional exercises, but to the very act of secret prayer and communion with God. Endeavor seven times a day to withdraw from business and company and lift up thy soul to God in private retirement. Begin the day by rising after midnight and devoting some time amidst the silence and darkness of the night to this sacred work. Let the hour of opening dawn find thee at thy same work, but the hours of nine, twelve, three, six, and nine at night witness the same. Be resolute in this course. Make all practical sacrifices to maintain it. Consider that thy time is short and that business and company must not be allowed to rob thee of thy God. At least remember the morning, noon, and night seasons, and season after midnight, if not detrimental to thy health. Um, my wife can tell you my standard isn't anywhere close to that. And neither do I ever believe that I will ascertain as such. Adoniram lived in a Christendom age. That's not an excuse for us not to have that fervency or devotion, but there was around him an entire culture that believed these type of things were the way to deploy your spiritual growth. The point in the passage, though, is that praying at all times with prayer and supplication is a a practical application of prayer, but it's also a mindset. We are taking every decision 
before the Lord. And certainly it should be a part of our meditations. 18b, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Now here, when we see keep alert, often that draws, at least to our minds, the idea that we have to resist temptation. As we read about in Revelation, the, Satan is a prowling lion, you know, around, going around to get ready to gobble you up, so, so resist temptation. And that's true. But here in this passage, it's showing us a different use of the word. Here it is, it is saying that be alert, not only resisting temptation, but rather be alert for the opportunities that God is giving you right now. Prayer in this sense is not a defensive weapon to resist the devil, but an offensive weapon to engage with the Holy Spirit and discover what the Lord is doing. One of the things that sets the United States military apart from many other nations, and there's a few other nations that are similar, is aircraft carriers. Aircraft carriers allow the United States to be an offensive nation, meaning we can go take the fight to someone else because we can rapidly deploy and withdraw troops most places in the world that are, have some close proximity to an ocean or a body of water. And the bodies of water tend to be neutral territory, at least much of it is, and so we can get there really quickly without seemingly uh, obstacles. This, too, is what allows prayer to be so important. There is no obstacle to prayer other than perhaps the, the sin we may feel impedes us in our own lives. But there's nothing that is stopping us from sending out these offensive weapons for the help of the gospel globally. John Piper says about this about prayer. Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls in for accurate location of the target of the word. It calls in to ask for the protection of air cover. It calls in to ask for firepower to blast open a way for the tanks of the word of God. It calls in the miracle of healing for the wounded soldiers. It calls in supplies for the forces and calls in needed reinforcements. You can argue that the gospel is needed everywhere. You could walk in a mile circumference around this church and find non-believers. There's no doubt that there is gospel need in every inch of the earth. But prayer is to be that guiding force which allows us to understand and you to understand as a congregation exactly where and how that gospel's weapons and that witness is to be deployed. You guys have an intense uh, belief in missions. This is probably, my, I think, my fourth time in this church. I've only been in this job for five years, and the fourth time that you've had me here, and thank you. But it's, and I believe it's because you guys want to see missions stay at the front and center of what your church is about. And therefore, it is for you to discover where the Spirit is leading you and your opportunity to deploy these gospel weapons, these missionaries themselves. Note that the next initiative that World Witness is coming up with is about mentorship. And you know what? It's not about our mentorship. We don't uh, give you staff to mentor you. You yourselves mentor each other. 
it's unlikely that whatever I say today is going to have much of an effect on a congregation of a whole in regards to missions if the congregation themselves is not already predisposed and pre-oriented to the idea that this is a good thing, and you are. You've got nine-tenths of the battle of what it means to raise missionaries because you yourselves understand the importance of it. And prayer is your discerning ability as a congregation to see where the Lord wants you to go. When we were in Turkey as a family in 2000, I guess it was 12 or so, we were praying for an opportunity that the Lord would give us to help the Turkish population from a, a, a witness of like helps. You know, we wanted, to, we wanted to reach the disenfranchised. We wanted to maybe aid the homeless or work with an orphanage. And we'd been in Turkey about two years, a uh, year and a half at that point. But the more we surveyed, the more we realized that the Turks don't really have the kind of social programs that we think of here and they certainly didn't want our help. It was to the point where it was illegal for a foreigner to even work in the capacity of something that would have been a, a social justice type of ministry. They kept that at a distance. But in our previous work in Israel, we we'd had a real heart to do something along these lines, to, to give some vis physical, visible voice to the gospel that we professed. Well, we started praying that that opportunity would come because it, there was nothing, uh, there, even surveying many believers, many organizations there, there was nothing uh, that we felt we were going to be allowed to be involved in. And the more we prayed, um, the more the Lord began to uh, open our eyes until the Syrian civil war started. And after the civil war started, refugees began pouring into southeastern Turkey. This was the area that we'd been working in uh, just prior to a, the move to Izmir, from southeast Turkey to Izmir. And when they started coming in, the government was overwhelmed. And within uh, a short period of time, the government was willing and able uh, to incorporate people like us. Uh, believers in southeastern Turkey ended up giving us a call, and we were able to begin organizing an effort for, to reach the refugees in southeast Turkey. And this denomination, the ARP Church, you guys whether or not you know this, were some of the first dollars given at the beginning of the Syrian civil war were by our denomination because there were already people on the ground able to help with this. Again, prayer, I don't believe, made the civil war happen. But I do believe that God used it to open our eyes that when the opportunity came, we were ready to jump. Prayer also facilitates ministry and miracles. Look at 18, second part of verse 18 again, and all the way through 20 now. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Back to Turkey again. Um, we eventually did move from southeast Turkey to Izmir area, which is the area that Andrew Brunson was working in many years ago. When we moved there, they actually they put us in the church that Andrew used to serve at. Andrew and the ARPs, as you 
well know used to work together, we're part of the same uh, agency, and then he went his own way, and he started a new church, and my wife and I ended up picking up the pieces uh, of the old church where he had been serving at, and about a year into that stint in Izmir, Andrew gave us a call, and he said, um, Alex, I'd like to get together, I've got some questions about refugee ministry, because at that point we'd begin to plug in into the refugee work, because the civil, Syrian civil war was still uh, was still throttling up, and we met over coffee, and his question was, how could he get more involved in this type of work? And we batted around some ideas. Uh, eventually, we, both, we found a child in southeastern Turkey who needed heart surgery, and this is, uh, we found this an opportunity to cooperate. Our two churches were able to cooperate to get this boy a, a surgery and help in the Izmir area. And then Andrew really jumped in with both feet. He and his wife ended up moving close to the Syrian border for a while and began to study Arabic uh, and do some gospel evangeliz evangelization work down by the border. Now, at the time, neither of us realized that, suspected probably, but neither of us realized how intensely information was being pieced together on those that were involved with the refugees because the refugees were seen as an intrinsic threat to the people of Turkey, so that those who uh, associated with them as well would be considered a potential threat. I remember my landlord, when we moved in, um, he, was a, he was a college professor, and we moved into our new apartment in Izmir, and he and I just started talking, and he goes, you know, let's get together for coffee sometime. He goes, I don't care if you're a missionary or if you're CIA or like both. I'd love just to get together and hang out with you. But that's the idea of what people think of you as a missionary in a place like Turkey. You're part of a cult or you're part of some intelligence gathering program of some, some other nation state. So this, was, this information was being gathered at the time. Uh, years later, Andrew, of course, would go on to be arrested for conspiring uh, with anti-government forces. He was charged anywhere from being a pro-Kurdish terrorist uh, to a Fatullah Gulen supporter. Fatullah Gulen was kind of a shadow government operating within Turkey based upon the leadership of a guy named Fatullah Gulen. And Andrew was accused of being one of these as well. If you've read his book, God's Hostage, you'll know that all of this is completely fabricated. And much of it was an anti-Christian effort. Uh, his arrest was an anti-Christian effort to get a lot of missionaries out of the country. You know, when this happened, though, when he was arrested, it was amazing at how priorities of our denomination so quickly came into alignment. Like this morning when um, Mr. Sloan gave the pastoral prayer, I was, I was, I was a little touched. I, there were some things I didn't know, some, some ailments and struggles in the church. And how beautiful is it when God's body, when, when, when someone can stand up here and announce to his, the family where prayer is needed and minds are quickly drawn to intercession. And it, it hurts that there are so many out there without that. Do you have, you have unbelieving friends, I, I hope. Uh, and one of the hardest things when you see them suffering and they have nowhere to go, maybe they've got some family members, but it's just, it's almost empty platitudes. The lack of connectivity of those without Christ is heartbreaking. So too, when Andrew went to prison, 
despite maybe some of the differences in the past, the whole denomination mobilized quickly because someone, in essence, had messed with their family, and certainly the family of God. It was beautiful to see this happen. The prayer quickly became, let him go, right? If you stood up here, if you were a child listening to this, every child, what's the first, what would a child pray? God, let him go, please. And, and notice that we weren't begging the prime minister of Turkey. We were begging our father who we know is sovereign. And here's the other issue with being, let's say, Presbyterian. This is not specific to a Presbyterian thing, but the doctrines of the sovereignty of God make prayers like, let him go, please, an entreating prayer. You know, in Scripture you see people entreating God, meaning asking of God. It sounds like they're demanding, but the word, that demanding word is the word entreat, begging of God to do this. But Presbyterians, we always have to tack on a, this little byline, don't we? And we should. But thy will be done. We can entreat and entreat and entreat. But in the end, we always have to acknowledge and bow down before the one who will discern what is best regardless. And I think it actually is most hard, hard for children. I think that they get it from a logic standpoint. But from the standpoint of justice, my middle daughter, um, Elisa, one day, uh, probably three months before he was released to his house arrest, Andrew's house arrest, my little daughter said, I don't know what's going to happen to my faith if God doesn't let this guy go. And I tried to give her a reasonable answer, but she was upset. Justice had not yet been done. Thy will be done is such a hard prayer to pray. And we should not do it lightly because he is going to do what he is going to do. Note, though, from the passage we don't hear Paul asking to be let go, do we? He asks instead that his gospel, that the mouth would be open, people would hear that he himself, as an ambassador of, in change, would have prayer that people would understand and know who Christ is despite of and through his own imprisonment. I'll contrast this with a little bit with Andrew. And Andrew wouldn't be shy about this. He'll be the first person to tell you his book. His book discusses it as well. Andrew felt like this was something he almost couldn't pray. Andrew was suicidal in prison. He was depressed. He was hotly anxious much of the time. He was on medication much of the time. He felt he despaired much of the time. If you read his book, I don't recommend doing it at night before bedtime because it is dark and it could bring you to a dark place. But we know the result in the end was what we, many of us wanted, but Andrew would tell you that during his time in prison, it's not what he wanted. The reality is, thy will be done is a terrible and wonderful and difficult prayer. If you've seen the cover of his book, You'll see him standing there, and he's got a little cross uh, over his hand right here. And he's pretty, pretty emaciated. This was taken during, uh, I think, about a, after a year or so in prison. And my family and I sat with him in September, and he and his wife, Norween, 
Noreen, and my daughter Elisa asked him what that little cross was doing on his hand. And he immediately began to openly weep. If you speak to Andrew, if he gets a chance, if he comes to your church, you may see that he is still dealing with a type of post-traumatic stress disorder where he just begins to openly and violently weep at the drop of a hat. And it scared, scared my daughter to death. But when he got his composure back, he said, he said, you know, he said, Elisa, that cross on my hand was taken when they allowed me one picture in this prison courtyard one day that they would share with my family because he hadn't had a picture taken since he got into prison. And he begged the guards to allow him to wear the cross. And he said, the reason I did that was because I wanted my kids to remember me that I was a man of the cross because I did not feel like it. And I did not, I felt like that my witness in prison had failed. But I wanted my kids to remember me like this, using words like, his thought was, process was, he was going to die in prison or be killed. I remember the day he got out of prison. I was in the Atlanta airport on my way to Florida with my daughter, Abigail, and uh, I just kind of lost it a little bit. Does anybody, if, for those of you who followed this, does, do people, you remember when he got out of prison? Do you remember kind of where you were? I think for many ARPs or people who are praying for him, this was a little bit of their, their moment, their kind of 9-11 moment, but in reverse, where they heard such good news that it was almost overwhelming, that two years of praying had finally shown some answer and some relief. But what was it that was benefited from it? What came out of all of these prayers for gospel proclamation in two years of anxiety and depression? One, a whole generation of ARP children were mobilized to pray. Little guys, like here in the front, who, who pray for, you know, Aunt Barbara's knee and Uncle Billy's elbow and all these other things, which are all we all want to pray for. Medical stuff is good. But they felt like fighters, like they were in it to win it when they could engage with God Almighty that someone that was a part of their family had been taken captive and they were entreating the Lord that he would let them go. And I would say for those two years, the, our own family devotions became very rich. Our own prayer time became something so much greater than I'm afraid that it even is now. We need to be teaching our children to engage on this level through things like Voice of the Martyrs. There's all sorts of websites. There's all sorts of ways that you can pick names and begin once again this process of entreating and coming before the Lord that His will be done and that the captives be set free. And the second thing that this did, I was in Israel... um, two years ago during Andrew's imprisonment still, and I didn't realize that the people there really knew Andrew very well. But it wasn't a conference that wasn't really related to World Witness. And, but while there, a season of prayer began just to break out in the conference, 
and people gave spontaneous testimony of what Andrew's imprisonment had done for them and their ministry. These are believers representing work from China to the Middle East and all the way to Israel. And there was testimony after testimony of how Andrew's imprisonment was giving people courage to share and to stand up for the gospel in the face of persecution and opposition. Despite that Andrew felt he was doing none of that. You know, in many ways, it's the perfect example of how God likes to use us in our weakness. Paul, though here in Ephesians, seems so strong, in Corinthians appears so weak and boasts about how weak he is because in that weakness, it shows God's strength. And in Andrew's weakness, though many of us would probably love to hear stories about how he was so bold and stuff, but it also puts him on a level that none of us can relate to. None of us know how we're going to behave in prison. I did have one, one elder, a, a guy from another ARP church, I will not mention names or places, came up to me after reading the book and goes, you know, I think I'd be a little stronger than that. And I was just like, get out of here. You don't, let's, let's try that. Let's send you to Turkey. Let's get you arrested. Let's put that theory to a test. Get out of here. None of us... None of us know how we're going to respond. But you know what the good news is as believers in Jesus Christ? Does that matter a whole lot? In terms of the big scheme of things, God is going to use your difficulties in life for His glory, no matter how you suffer them. No matter how you suffer them, He as a good, sovereign God will use that for His glory. You see, Satan believes... That persecution is a weapon for dismantling God's kingdom. But history tells us time and again that persecution is that which unites and resurrects God's kingdom. And that the ammunition and fuel of this is prayer. There's a pastor named Zishan in Pakistan, who was visiting the States a few weeks ago, and I was driving him around, and we were uh, just talking, and I said, Zishan, tell me a lesson that you've learned as the minority in Pakistan that I could tell or wish for our own churches here in the United States. Teach us what we should know as a, how to grow up as a church. And he said, well, he kind of laughed. He goes, I guess I would teach you persecution. He said, there was a twin bombing at a church uh, in 2016, not far from where he was. And after this bombing, there were more congregants in this church than ever have been before. Persecution for the minority group, at least amongst our ARP brothers and sisters in Pakistan, seems to be the fuel with which God chooses to grow his church. We can't learn that by just living here. It's something that happens to us. And I don't wish persecution for the church. I don't believe that's a, a prayer that needs to be prayed. But I do believe that we should be engaging in places and in people that give us the opportunity 
to potentially experience it via prayer. And if God should bring it in some more tangible way here, we say, Thy will be done. One of the difficult things about raising a generation of missionaries is, of course, that you have to send them out. Send them away from where you are, from the spiritual care and arms and the VBS and the Sunday school lessons and the conferences of this church. One of the things that's very difficult about being a missionary, and Katie Schuler probably could tell you this, is when you're here, you're put on a pedestal, and everybody's so supportive and so loving, but as soon as you land there, all of that's gone instantly. There's no afterglow of being a missionary who is celebrated in another context. It's you and the Lord, and that's it. Unless you have a congregation that prays. Your prayers are what equips Katie Schuler to do what she does. She is able to boldly proclaim the gospel because you are taking your aircraft carrier-sized prayer and pushing them to Japan, that the, whole, that the Spirit would use this work. These are the tools that God will use to employ all the other tools we read about in Ephesians 6. So, Grace Presbyterian Church, pray boldly that Katie's mouth would be open. Pray that if persecution comes, that they would stand strong, but rest in the sovereignty of God that His will will be done and He will be glorified regardless. And realize as well that we're not simply doing these things because we want God that we want God to do something for us, but we're doing it for His glory, and that the whole generation of ARPs that began their mobilization in a new way with the imprisonment of Andrew Brunson would be unafraid to continue it and to even pray that they themselves would be sent. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Grace Presbyterian. I thank You for their love of missions. I thank You for their love of You. And I pray this morning that You would use prayer to help us discern calls, to help us discern who you're bringing out, Lord. And if there's someone this morning who doesn't know what to do or think or feel, we know, Lord, we, don't, we shouldn't trust our feelings. Rather, we should rely and lean into others who have godly wisdom and who are people of the Lord and who, have, who, have, who are mature in their faiths. So, Lord, even if there are people with questions about whether they are going to be sent into missions, Lord, I pray they would find a trusted elder, a trusted a deacon, a trusted friend, and be willing to share that openly without shame, without question, without uh, reservation, Lord, that you would use this church to indeed call forth your next generation of missionaries. And we thank you for the missionaries on the field, and we pray that this church would be in continual deployment of prayer, that the work that you are doing there would be accomplished through the prayers here and the physical presence of the missionaries there. Let this be done for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name, amen.